You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we're changing tack from our recent conversations focused on regenerative materials to explore another angle of best practice. Today, we speak to one of the UK's leading engineers who is delivering ambitious projects for global clients in London and around the world. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. Our own discipline, like the big architects, has made hay in the last 20 years through technology by expanding its own position drastically. Different types of engineers are working in a different way. And some of them operate around, you know, neologism, like uh, timber is the next concrete, a stone can do everything, or concrete is really bad. You know, these things are unhelpful. So my position on all of this is really, we've got to rethink. There is no question and there is no time. We have to start from the position of what is the most sensible thing to do, which has a long life. Once you've made those two things happen, how do you go about either saving old buildings or making new ones? Or how do you resist the temptation of fashions in material? Today, our guest is structural engineer Hanif Kara, founder of AKT2, a London-based design engineering practice of 350 working across the globe. AKT2 is behind numerous recent award-winning projects that will be familiar to many of our listeners. Grafton's recently opened Marshall Building at the LSE, Grafton's Sterling Prize-winning townhouse in Kingston, and Foster's Bloomberg to mention just a few. Hanif was recognized with an OBE in this year's Queen's Honors List, and he is a professor of architectural technology at Harvard Graduate School of Design. He's just co-edited a book on cross-laminated timber with a Harvard colleague that we're going to be discussing. Unlike most of our other guests so far, I would venture to say that Hanif is not a climate champion from way back. I hosted a conversation between Hanif and Peter Clegg of Field & Clegg Bradley Studios recently at FutureBuild and quickly realized that AKT2 is currently working with all the most ambitious clients like Google and Apple and British Land who have the resources and commitment to deliver sustainable outcomes. This means that he's on the forefront of what's being delivered on the ground now. This is quite different from our last few conversations with people who are really pushing the boat out on regenerative materials and doing everything they can not to build with concrete. But the reality is that concrete is, as Hanif explains, ubiquitous and here to stay. So Hanif, AKT2 works on all sorts of extraordinary projects. I've just mentioned a few and you're currently on site with Big and Thomas Heatherwick for the Google headquarters at King's Cross. 
Before we dive into the detail of materials, I want to step back and look at the big picture of architecture with a capital A. A couple of key trends in contemporary architecture include the building as a diagram coming out of the Super Dutch era. Björk Engels works with this, where form is pushed or twisted to generate a kind of lighthearted outcome. Or another approach is using very complex parametric forms proliferated on the computer for mostly decorative effect. In these approaches, structure comes in to support a form derived from other considerations. But if we take climate emergency and embodied carbon seriously, have these kinds of approaches seen their day? Will structure lead the form of buildings once again? I can't ever see any building where necessarily I would claim the structure to have led the process. Bridges, I can see. So our definition of what an engineer does and structure does might be at odds here because I've always argued that the purest engineering world was never really the only other way to do things. So as much as you say form-driven engineering might have had its day, engineering-driven architecture had its day even before that. So if you drive the focus through the lens of uh, climate, that we all need to come together and review the discipline and change the boundaries quite dramatically. That's not necessarily just at the scale of architecture, as you know. That's at the scale of what we know of how the materials behave, how we readapt and rethink them, but also at the scale of city, how do we reimagine cities? And, and it gets more complex when you correlate that with the developed world against the developing world, because over there, it's still quite difficult to get any building that doesn't have an iconic image, whether it's based on shape, style, fashion, or a particular approach to architecture. Outside the developed world, by that I mean predominantly Europe, it's difficult to convince people that they can not have the stuff we've had. So I'm not convinced that there is a, a problem with what you're describing as form-driven. I would say that you're right, that when a form arises, quite often, the role of the engineer is secondary because he's more about testing rather than driving it and testing and optimizing. So that role in, in the project you mentioned with Biaki and Thomas, for example, which is a very, very big building, it has particular ideas at King's Cross are about freeing the ground, which is an old debate about the city. You know, if you're going to build it now, how would you keep the ground free? That's why the whole building hangs and it looks like a very simple diagram just extruded. But, you know, it's right next to a railway line as well. So you can see that there were other thought processes that led to that particular diagram against, say, maybe the Serpentine Pavilion or the Shanghai Expo with Thomas, where there were one-liners in some ways, in that there was a formal idea that we just made work technologically. When it comes to building with people in it, there is another layer underneath what we receive that we look at. And we find it very hard to be given a blank sheet and say, this is the most optimal structure and this is the best and most energy-free way to do things. Go and make people 
uh, live in it, work in it, or even tell your client that's what you should build. We are kind of nervous about that approach. And, and to be honest, it's been a, a burden a little bit because obviously only now are we getting consensus within our own discipline on what we should do about energy and how we should measure it. Our own discipline, like the big architects, has made hay in the last 20 years through technology by expanding its own position drastically. Different types of engineers are working in a different way and some of them operate around you know, neologism like uh, timber is the next concrete, a stone can do everything, or concrete is really bad. You know, these things are unhelpful. So my position on all of this is really, we've got to rethink. There is no question and there is no time. That's the new thing that I'm worried about. We don't have time to experiment too much. So we have to start from the position of what is the most sensible thing to do which has a long life. Once you've made those two things happen, how do you go about either saving old buildings or making new ones? Or how do you resist the temptation of fashions in material that are sometimes hijacked by experts, either in industry or even within architecture, to say, I'm the expert in this field and give me that project because it's a hospital. I did the last hospital or I did the last CLT building, therefore I must do it. I can say to you that this is not new, Hattie, because if you go all the way back to my first major project for my company, which is Peckham Library, it had steel, concrete, timber pods, copper, glass, all of the materials. In those days, it was for a different purpose, use and effect. Today, effect is less important than energy. So my, my answer would be that most of these things have had their day when you look at it from an energy perspective, but the answer isn't to just kill all these things off. So I want to talk about materials in a minute, and we have a lot of questions for you. But again and again, I've been writing about this topic for a while now, the whole notion of integrated design and close collaboration between all the disciplines comes up as the way forward. What's your take on that? That's why I started teaching at the same time as starting practice because I think that in the last 50 years in particular the separation between the disciplines is even more stark. You get really good architects, really good engineers, really good mechanical engineers and, and so on. This thin slicing of the discipline was the reason why I started AKT because that thin slicing will also having an impact on how we make buildings. So my position on it is that without any question whatsoever, transdisciplinary, where you have a bunch of experts who work around the framework of a building or framework of a problem like climate, is coming to town. Because transdisciplinary is something we've talked about for a long time. It's not multidisciplinary. It's not the same as interdisciplinary. Everyone's an expert in their own field. They're actually tackling the same problem. And I think climate has done that. Money was a big driver. How do we make economy? How do we make faster buildings? How do we do taller? These were singular in some ways. So the tallest building would always have an engineer first. The client would talk to him. The lift, how far can we take the lift? So on. Whereas now I think my position is that by being an expert at structural engineering, but having very good knowledge, very good knowledge of m and &E, and pretty good knowledge of architecture, 
I can operate in a transdisciplinary world very easily. And I learned some of this through the teaching. So what I've been watching over time, over the last 20, 30 years, and, and you know I was in the AA at the time of the blow up of the whole parametrics world. And, and you know, I first arrived there when Zaha was there. FOA won the, the, the project in Yokohama the year I was there. So you can see I lived through these things that engineers had never seen because we were too busy just trying to make a brick or straighten a beam and had had to be contaminated as well as inspired by it. And I've changed in a way to, to fit that. Okay, now we're going to come on to materials. You've just co-edited a book called Blank, Speculations on CLT, and you were kind enough to send me a copy last week. It's all about the architectural potential of the material, and you clearly state from the outset that your book purposefully does not address issues like sustainability or fire. We're still going to ask you a bit about this in a minute. The premise of many of the projects in your book is that CLT panels are like a blank piece of paper which can become anything. It can be structure, it can be surface. And reviewing your book recently, Eddie Heathcote said the following, CLT may hold a status in our time similar to concrete for the modernists or plastics in the post-war era. So what are some of the ways that you see CLT being used that you think are most compelling and interesting? Yeah, I I think that, first of all, um, CLT is most interesting and compelling when it is local. Austria, Scandinavia and parts of Canada where it's easily available, they have had 100 to 150 years of sustainable farming, where the sequestration argument, whether you're back sequestering or forward, can be made to work, and you don't have to transport it too far. On top of that, typology is important. So most buildings have a horizontal surface and a vertical surface. It's whether it's a frame or a slab. So when you look at types, you very quickly see that housing often needs a lot of both vertical and horizontal surfaces and often needs acoustics, fire resistance, separation between neighbours. So the frame idea that Cope put with Domino House is not necessarily interesting for housing because you then have to infill it and you have to make a wall and so on. So my argument would be that after locality, the second point is type. They're probably most likely to to give us the best responses to housing schemes, you know, where we have different ways of working with housing. And the third point I would make is, again, the limitation of it. Let's avoid for a second, at least, the fire and and all the rest of the acoustic issue. But just in terms of scale, Culture House in Skellefte, which is mentioned in our book, is the tallest one at the moment in Scandinavia. But when you go there, what you see is, the columns are literally a meter by a meter, something you would never see in a steel or a concrete building. So the limits are beginning to arrive because in order to make it all or as much CLT as possible, the taller you go, the harder it becomes to make it work because of the strength. You need the compression strength, which concrete and steel have, that CLT doesn't. So there are, there are issues on limit of height. So very tall buildings, in CLT will be difficult unless CLT is an infill. So it works very well with floors. It works very well with being load-bearing as a wall system, which is why we talk about the blank being 
an opportunity because it's doing three things at once, giving you the skin, the insulation and the load bearing support. Unlike a brick, it's not a brick on a brick labor. You kind of industrially make it in factories and transporting, which saves a lot of energy and ways of doing that. So I do see that that type of use is without any doubt for new developments. The other area that we have been promoting it quite a lot is when you have to add on top of existing buildings because of its lightness Mm -hmm. and because of its nature, the tolerance that you will have when you experience a building that has been added to. It's a really no-brainer in many ways. You can put a lot of this stuff on most of London's housing schemes. You could do one floor without even thinking about it. So I think there's an opportunity there. I also am very cautious about its exposure to climate. Everybody knows that if it's wet, it starts to rot and you can't really bring it when it's raining. So places that we're looking at in the Middle East where it's very hot, we're looking at places where it might get exposure to rain and salt quite a lot. So we're nervous about how it will behave in those kind of worlds because its development has largely been in very cold particular climates. And yet there's more testing to be done on how we use it in in other climates, I suspect. That would be my take on it. I'm a fan, but I'm also very, very careful as a structural engineer not to be biased as an expert in CLT, which is why I did the book. I didn't want to be either beholden to those that claim that they're wooden engineers and architects. Neither did I want to say that I can't do timber or CLT. The responsible position to take was, well, I would find the best way to do it with an architect and a manufacturer. I wouldn't just do what a manufacturer will send me and just assemble that. That's not the world I live in. And I think the book tried very hard to get that across in the US in particular. At least it's moved the needle in terms of anyone can do it. You just got to think about it a bit more. What about the thermal mass question? particularly if you're going to hot places. Yeah, it's, it's an issue even in, in cold places. As you heard me say before, if the temperature does go up by one degree, it doesn't give you the cool that concrete does. Absolutely. So there's a discussion to have on what will we do if we use it for a lot of housing? Suddenly, do we just have to make it thick to give us the insulation, even though it doesn't need to be structurally thick? How do we deal with the increase in temperature? So we are right now testing the combination of timber CLT with skin, a very thin skin of concrete on it, where the concrete is only providing thermal mass because you don't need the whole depth. And we're beginning to do this just to to do some continuation of work that has come through the office because clients have been nervous about one aspect or another. And we feel responsible that we should actually test this because we learned a lot about CLT as well from the headquarters building in, in King's Cross that you referred to, because, you know, at 30,000 square meters of CLT on that, how it behaves dynamically was not predictable. It was very difficult. So we've had to go back and do some more tests. Whenever a new material arrives, Hattie, this happens. You know, you either rush to it and there's a lot of naive enthusiasts or there's a lot of biased um, rejection of it. And what we try to do is actually test these things on on a range of projects. And I think that is the benefit of being 
a curious engineer who is trusted to also bring in research and development into the work so the client can benefit. So I, I'm quite keen that it's not seen as over-enthusiastic or a biased rejection from me, but I do get concerned about that kind of virtual signalling on any material. Because sometimes it's talked about as if it's a sort of wonder material that everything can and should be made out of, even when that doesn't necessarily play to its strengths. Like sometimes it's used for its visual appearance on a building that isn't big enough to need its kind of structural properties, or it might be sort of treated as a bit like a card model that's kind of a full scale. It doesn't really work like that. So, yeah, it's interesting to hear about the balance between using it in appropriate contexts and scales and, and types rather than as, yeah, something to be kind of rolled out across everything, everywhere. The other project that really does that is the Maggie Centre in Leeds with Thomas, which is not just CLT, it's timber though. Everything is timber. And I think it was predominantly driven by health and well-being and tactility of timber. But there, the answer, you know, going back to Hattie's first question, we didn't get given a shape. It was a very tight site. What we were given was, well, we had to do the healthiest building. And these are my ideas. How do we go about doing it? Can we test it with timber? And we could do it with timber, but we then had to strengthen some aspects of timber locally with metal. And we predominantly have done it with timber. So it goes back to the point about what is the role of the engineer? How does the material act as an alibi in that design question for both the engineer as an architect? And how does it act as a permanent solution for climate? Because that's the other question. How long these buildings will live and how do you really talk about sequestration? It's quite a complicated situation. The wonderful thing is that Structural engineers are finally coming to some kind of consensus that we should use dynamic models to to actually pitch where the target should be. And we're coming to some kind of conclusion that we should only be looking at the forward sequestration rather than the backward. Because if you just cut a forest and don't grow it, that's not acceptable. But that doesn't actually happen often in the CLT world. You know, they are always farming. So we're finding some consensus in life, dynamic life cycle assessment, which is a bit more accurate. This is coming from Bath University, Imperial College, and, and people like us who are talking about how do we properly represent CLT outside the general noise that's going on. Well, that is a perfect segue into my next question, which is about all these claims about using timber or CLT to cancel out more carbon-intensive materials in buildings in order to reach net zero. I don't entirely buy that. Isn't it much more about the right amount of the right material in the right place rather than just let's use more timber so we can get it to all add up to zero? Hattie, I think you should say that out more loudly and more clearly, please, because concrete and steel are not going away. We are finding solutions. We're we're looking at a very interesting project with Imperial College using olivine, Ceratec it's called, using olivine as the, the natural stone that we would make the cement out of and it captures carbon. It's early days, but we'll make a pavilion in the summer to see if it works. We're, we're looking at, of course, cement replacement has been around and LC3 that's around quite a lot. We've done some cement repiling for Canada Water and so on, but there are opportunities in concrete that 
might not happen in the speed that we want it, 10 or 20 years, but it certainly isn't going away. And, and we think, certainly in my office with some people, that it's good to do that because at least we can then transport that thinking, the recipe. We can't transport the cake across to China, but we can transport that recipe and get them convinced that actually you don't have to do it the way we did it. So there's that going on. In steel, DRI, which is reduced iron, pig iron, which only Sweden has managed to make work at the moment, where they're using a new way of making pig iron before you make it into steel, but also using electric arc furnaces. So they're making green steel, literally. And it, it's only so far in Sweden. There are others that are making it in the Middle East and so on, but that's heavily reliant on natural gas. So there are things happening in the steel and concrete industry that mean something. We ourselves are experimenting with what we can do with masonry. What can we do with the, the most common unit is a brick. How can we find new ways other than going back to adobe construction? How can we find materials that can actually allow us to make those things again? And I think this is why the, the kind of voices you're putting out there and the noise you need to help us make is to make people think broader and, and come out of their specialism or neolism or fame chasing or whatever it is they're trying to do and actually have a bigger debate, which I think ACAN has helped quite a lot more than most other things. That's been my thinking over the last three years, listening to all the papers that come from them. ACAN is doing absolutely fantastic work on numerous fronts. It's actually at one of the early ACAN meetings that I met George and this podcast was born. I went along to a meeting in late 2019 wondering why we needed yet another climate activism group, how wrong I was. So we've got a few more questions about other materials like, like concrete, but sticking to the CLT just for now, my sister-in-law comes from Latvia and every time she goes back, more and more of its forests are cut down, much of it to be used as biofuel in power stations like Drax. Because of this idea that burning wood is CO2 neutral, Latvia's lost nearly a quarter of its forests just since 2000. Does a rush towards CLT risk the same kind of destruction? In one word, yes, absolutely. I mean, it won't be as bad as biofuel because the burning of that is the worst way to use the wood because the charcoal that comes out of it and, and so on and so on, it's just, you're just trapping carbon and nothing happens. At least with CLT, there is an afterlife. You can reuse it and so on. Uh, but it is headed in the, that same direction. And particularly when you quantify it, we did some numbers and the size of Twickenham Stadium, which is roughly a hectare, produces only about a meter square by 17 millimeters of usable CLT. So the amount you're talking about in terms of forest and scale, because the rest of the material gets used for other things, but some of it is left there. So the way they farm it is also quite important. And, and it wor it's worrying when you remind me of places like Latvia, because we've seen so many photographs of horror in the way they're just deforesting. You know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's horrible what's going on. So I would tend to say that, yes, if we're not carefully putting the narrative down and the codes of practice down, there is a great danger that 
we will be importing it from all over the world in dodgy situations. So another CLT question. A criticism that I have heard is that it can make buildings hard to adapt in the future, and we talk so much about the need for flexible buildings. How much of a concern do you think that is? It depends on the degree of adaption. So the main reason for using CLT at King's Cross was adaption, because the degree of adaption they wanted was to be able to move floors every so often, remove several floors and stack them up. You can't do that with anything else. We have robots inside and cranes that can just do it in a month, in a week, sometimes, you know. So the lightness of it and its stackability on top of other things can make it more adaptable as a floor. If you combine the floor with a load-bearing system in wall, you can't do that because, I mean, you take the floor off, the wall falls over. So you have to think about degrees of adaption. I think people who are saying this are right about the fact that you can't cut it up. It's not like your home where you can take the floorboards off and actually take some joists out. It's not like that. It's, it's an engineered wood. It's very difficult to cut by yourself if you try it. So there are adaption problems with it in that sense, and there are people concerned about that. But in the long term, it is possible to remove it. It's possible to give it a second life. It's possible to do all sorts of other things with it. So largely speaking, I'm optimistic about adaptability. So... After Grenfell, the government was bounced into banning combustible materials from external walls of residential buildings over 18 metres, including some uh, timber and, and CLT, even those th- these weren't to blame. How much of a barrier is this? And do we need a more evidence-based, less of a knee-jerk approach? Yeah, it's absolutely imperative, George. And the industry is gathering its force. I mean, we have gone back to the government, the Institute of Social Engineers and many of us, to try and put another level of precision on that statement because it's imprecise. And often we do knee-jerk. It kind of happened in the 60s when Ronan Point blew up and we had to then reintroduce ways of tying floor so it never happens again. I think Grenfell was very, very unfortunate for many other reasons and there were many things that we're going to have to learn and change as a consequence of that. But timber is not a problem, so CLT shouldn't be punished. At the moment, it's been punished a little bit. Many of the projects are not being insured in the UK because there is a reaction from the insurance industry that by the time the government agrees to this stuff, we will be out of the market. So why would we want to wait? Why don't we just make it out of concrete to steel? In France, as you know, and in Germany and in Austria, the rules are slightly different. So they haven't stopped all their CLT buildings. They've looked at the fire engineering arguments and the arguments are misunderstood because it's as much about the volume of what you burn as it is about the thickness of a floor. So fire regenerates itself. And obviously, if you're going to have certain volumes where it just burns and burns and burns in rotation, you will get a progressive collapse. But if you devise floors that are far enough, it will only deal with local problems. And I think this is something that is now being developed among the fire engineering fraternity. In, in, in my office, certainly, they're, they're working with this with UCL, actually, on how we can develop fire engineering arguments 
that make it safe and convince people of its safety. So knee-jerk is never a good thing, but sometimes it's the necessary thing because we'd gone too far with what happened at Grenfell. And it was very unfortunate that things went that bad before we had to react. Okay, I want to come back now to concrete, and you've alluded to the simplistic arguments that are floating around that timber's going to answer all our problems and that concrete is bad. So what are the most interesting things you see happening on the concrete front, and what sort of timeline are we looking at? Quick answers have come from replacement of cement. So the three things we have to do is reduce the CO2 in the cement itself, so make a different kind of cement. The second thing we have to do is capture the carbon that current concrete creates, uh, meaning cement. And the third thing is really reduce the quantity of cement itself in the mix of concrete. So when, when you align all these three, there are products out there already that are doing some of it. New types of cements are replacing cement, yet we haven't got enough of it. But LC3 and, and a number of other generic products are beginning to challenge the idea of using blast furnace slag, the replacement, the CGBS, with better and more sustainable systems. My most optimistic answer is definitely olivine. Ceratec, the material I mentioned earlier, where we are fortunate enough to have agreed amongst us that it's the chemistry of the concrete that needs to change. We are beginning to see that using that olivine and separating magnesium out of it and making silica, there's a way of making, capturing the carbon within the system and then a way of recycling it. It's very early days, but if people like Cimex and Holshim get hold of this, which they will, because you can imagine there are literally billions being spent by those two cement manufacturers to find solutions. And at the moment, some of the good solutions they've come up with is using green energy to transport the concrete or moving the plants and the recipe closer to a site rather than exporting. But they haven't got to the chemistry enough yet. There are some new concretes that are patented that are beginning to get there. You know, they have tension capacity and some chemical in them, but we need to find out more about those. So there's those two. And then there is the, the third and fourth in a way. So, you know, EPFL have been doing a lot of LC3. If you, if you look up EPFL's research, they're very good in, in, in terms of investment. So more investment needs to go into how to lighten the concrete as well. So we design it with old style voids in it and use less of it. And then on top of that, using carbon capture, there will be a way of doing it. So it'll take... 10 years, I think, before some of these products actually are used in real buildings. But I thought that three years ago that chem-free wouldn't be used. But then one of our clients has got the insurance to underwrite this for piling at Canada Water. So it's very much dependent on a client who's curious and pushing and also has the power to drive the insurance industry. I think industry is ahead of practice in this in some ways. We as engineers and architects are slightly behind because they are in the front line of trying to solve some of these problems. So it will come. And there's a lot of transdisciplinary collaboration between constructors, research labs and practitioners. Because on the topic of the alternative mixes for concrete, like a common one is GGBS. My understanding is that it's 
it counts as low carbon because, well, it comes out of making steel, but then the carbon is assigned to the steel rather than the GGBS. So there's a limited amount of it. So if you use more of it in one project to make that one count as lower carbon, then there's less to be used elsewhere. And then there's the whole issue of the shortage of sand. So with these kind of alternative mixes, how much is it, would it be possible to scale these up considering the enormous volumes of concrete that are kind of used in the world? What's the balance of just having to use a lot less concrete and, and specify different structural systems? It's a circular argument because the CGBS literally comes from an evil process of making steel. The slag comes from using carbon fossil fuels to make steel. So fuel ash and PVA, whichever you use, is not guilt-free. It's just not as bad as things were, you know, with pure cement. So there is no doubt that we have to get rid of that as a temporary measure. It's helping, it's reducing carbon. We have to find solutions at large scale that will replace that. And we have to find new ways of making cement. The wonderful thing about concrete, as you know, is it's ubiquity. I think we'll find these alternative cements and alternative chemistries that help us to change it. It's not going to be singular, but scaling it up fast is not going to be an issue because I think the economics of that have flipped already. If you look up the McKinsey report on what what is predicted in terms of how much is being invested in green investments, there will be a lot of money to continue building in a proper way, let's say. So I can't imagine it will stop. That said, there is a, a responsibility to stop building in some parts of the world, like here. You know, we have to think very carefully before we build anything new. Well, it's good to hear some optimism about uh, the adoption of alternatives anyway. Yes, and that there is a lot of research going on. Hanif, I know that you like to be provocative, and I've recently heard you reiterate what people like Michael Pollan have been calling for for some time, that we need a whole new paradigm or systems change, and we need to move beyond the low-hanging fruit of sustainable design. So you've said that the data that sits behind certification schemes like BREAM and LEED, quote, is largely lies and doesn't really work, unquote. What are you getting at there? Uh, what I'm getting at is that so far, we, and I mean the global we, have been able to pull the floor up with these devices like, you know, the BREAM and the LEED, and we've been making out we're responsible and doing better than we were before these factors arrived. I believe if you go back to first principles on many of these things and do post-occupancy on many of them, you will know that the data never really responded to when it got its tick as Briam Excellent. If you go back five years later and measure it, it's leaking more, it's, it's got all sorts of problems. So what I mean by that is investment and post-occupancy measurement, but also really pushing beyond those local and low-hanging fruit. And I, I quote the Bloomberg headquarters quite a lot because I know that many architects complained about it when it won the prize, but tell them to go back and measure it because that's what Foster and Partners and the client did and are doing and continue to do. On operational performance, 
I totally agree that it is exceptional to find a building of the complexity of Bloomberg operating as intended. I happened to bump into Michael Jones, the Foster's partner in charge of that project, in the Roman Mithrium below the building about a year after it opened. He was visiting with Lady Sterling, and he explained to me that he had just received the results of one-year monitoring, which showed the building was performing very close to its predicted performance. My understanding is that there is almost zero performance gap. This is an incredible achievement which has been underreported in the press. Embodied carbon is another matter, and that's where a lot of the pushback from the profession has come particularly with the increased understanding of the importance of whole life carbon that has evolved in the five years since the building was completed. A significant part of the existing foundations on the site were reused, with presumably massive savings as substructure is a large component of embodied carbon. But if my understanding is correct, the exterior sandstone for the walls was quarried in Derbyshire and then sent to Italy to be finished and the beautiful bronze on the operable gills in the facade, while a thin veneer was sourced from Japan. Clearly, we must crack open current supply chains and start doing things differently if we're going to build regeneratively. Can you elaborate on the embodied carbon analysis you did for Bloomberg, and do you know how it stacks up against the 2030 targets? So the first thing to say that the building opened in 2017, so we were targeting Briam at the time, so no specific embodied carbon calculations were done at the time. The embodied energy calculations that we do now are far more granular. So in that particular case of Bloomberg, totally agree with you, you know, there were things that we did that we shouldn't have done, maybe like to take the sandstone out of the country and bring it back. But on the whole, when you look at St. Paul's, which is 320 years old, and it's within reaching distance of us, the goal was that, was, you know, for Bloomberg, could we get something that could be there for three or 400 years, even though we were designing for over 100? Most people weren't at the time. The granularity today is far more sophisticated. As we said earlier, you know, dynamic life cycle measurements are only just entering the structural engineer's world, we're getting some consensus. There isn't any question in my mind that as we get more granular, we'll get better. So in the case of the substructure on that project, but the biggest saving was really in the fact that we'd reused close to 6,000 piles on site. You get probably 20 to 30% of embodied carbon in any structural system is below ground. So it's a significant hit of your taking the substructure and and going for it in terms of saving as much carbon as possible. And I know there are lots of visceral comments, you know, by those who don't really understand construction, those who talk about it and those who write about it. I also know that, you know, new buzzwords appear time and time again. Regeneration is one. Regenerative is a word that was invented in 1300. But we have to do these things. Criticism is good. It is good, but my own view remains, and I invoke C.P. Snow, you know, criticism that is uh, that concentrates on the tiny passage of mind that is insensitive to the total flavor of the project. Remember, Bloomberg is about a city. It was about the square mile, the last island site. You had to go for everything. I don't 
disregard the fact that the budget was far more than most buildings. This is not to do with anything but the granularity and the way people report and more than anything, the post occupancy. And I think both Bloomberg and if I could just say White Collar Factory now, they're being post occupancy measured. Yeah, we need a lot more building performance evaluation. And that is quite a nerdy subject that is close to my heart because I co-authored a book about it. In fact, we're going to talk about post-occupancy in our next episode. But it's more the embodied question with Bloomberg that has been raised by both the press and the profession. So we should do the calculation and, uh, and look back. It'd be useful for us to do that, I think. So what I'm getting at is, yeah, these kind of requirements, and there are so many of them now all over the world, create jobs to a certain point and they lift the floor, but they don't push the ceiling. The ceiling pushing is really still coming from big questions from big architects. And I've seen that happen in Mazda, I've seen that happen in Iran. So I'm finding that low-hanging fruit is sadly just lifting the floor and we're going to lose a whole generation now who will not no longer believe those things and actually leave our industry because we, my generation, are not listening to how do we leapfrog certain things. And there are these social um, impact questions. There are these millennial questions. There are questions about the generations rethinking how do we escape the problem we've all created. And I, I would at that point, if it's right, to talk about retrofit a little bit. Because I do feel that it, like the climate, in a smaller way, it brought us together. Because, you know, you threw out the gauntlet with that campaign. And thankfully, it wasn't a moratorium on, on let's not build. So I've started looking at the estates works we've been doing for Grown and Cadogan, where we've taken conservation buildings. And the thing that is always common in all of them is to reverse engineer. Try and understand what was done by the previous people and why and when. So in, in Diddington Mills, which was three centuries ago made out of iron, you know, with the FCB, we've been learning about the process of making iron, why they made those columns like that. How do you reverse engineer and then apply to that an acceleration with our new tools? How would we now do it? And we do it differently because that's the kind of accelerated reverse engineering model that has allowed us to look at concrete on the South Bank. And we've extended it by 11 floors, although everyone said you couldn't extend a 26-floor building by 11. But when we looked at the concrete, which is only six, from the 1960s, we could reverse engineering. The codes were too conservative. The design was over-designed to some extent. The materials have grown in strength rather than weakened. So we've reversed all that and said, OK, with all that capacity, we can actually add on top. This reverse engineering, you mean just establishing exactly the capacity of what was there before in a very nuanced way. It is. I mean, the term reverse engineering is used by software manufacturers and everybody, but in our particular world of built environment, what it means is taking the building and trying to understand exactly why they did what they did, but also then saying, let's do some more tests to see if their assumptions were correct, because we now have the tools, we have access with drones, we can go and have a look. We can do some more tests that we couldn't before, we couldn't afford them, there was no research money, and then apply new forensic tools, which the computation now allows us. And you suddenly come with a, 
an enormous benefit. And this particularly helped us at the net zero building at, at Broadgate with British land, where Hopkins remodeled the whole building, increased the area of, of a 1980s building by 40%. And we only took 50% of the steel out of it. We didn't do any new foundations. This was all done because there were good records. We could look at the records. We could say it's over-designed here. How could we reverse engineer that? Can we put a couple of more bolts in or take some out and do some welding and so on and so on? And that idea is not new. It's something we've had to do, but we need to do far more of it now than ever before if you take the thicker version of retrofit where the, the engineering is also involved. It's not just about the skin. The skin is another another thing that I think curtain walls are, are, are coming to their end of life in, in London because they're only designed for 25 years. We can't take them all off. So we have to think about how can we give it a new 100-year life instead of 25 now. So a lot going on at the, in this area. Yeah, Simon Sturgis has been saying that for a while. So... Do you design your work with a view of how it can be adapted in the future? There's the whole conversation around end of life and dismantling buildings, even kind of having to adapt buildings in the future. Is that part of your methodology? Yes, it, it, it's not new. I mean, some clients were already doing that. So they Google or Apple, all of the ones we're working for were already doing it. And this assembly is, is coming in, but we are resistant to it because really... Nobody will ever disassemble that easily. So why don't you just try and make something that will last 200 years or 100 years and also allow for some disassembly? But if you start doing Meccano sets that will then be disassembled every 25 years, you're going to run into another problems. It's, it's a big discussion, but adaptability and flexibility has become a proper word now. You know, we used to do it like as a tick box before. We're doing some that are being disassembled. I told Hattie that Number one, Broadgate, the steel is going to be reused in another project. In the past, you, would, you wouldn't have heard of it. The client would never say, can I reuse my steel for something else? Just went to a waste somewhere. Okay, I've got one last question for you. We could go on for another hour, and we haven't even really touched on the whole north-south question, which you alluded to at the beginning. Can you describe for us a bit about your journey of engaging with these issues and when did it really start to shape the way you work? You know, it's, it's a very personal question. So why did I ever become an engineer is where it starts. I came from an immigrant background in Uganda. I realized the built environment changed my life when I came here as a young boy because we literally lived in a small town called Bombo in, in Uganda, which was made of mud and so on. My father was a school builder, very small schools. So I already had this knowledge of how much the built environment improves your life. I would completely agree with you that I also, when I started the practice, also had an entrepreneur hat on. You know, what was going out there? Who was not building? And I could make things happen for that person and therefore be profitable enough to not do house extensions. There was always that strain to me. There's no, I've never been ashamed of it. I'm very proud of it. But the birthplace and the connection to the Avakana War for Architecture for over 20 years, I've always had my eye on how to make things cheaper, quicker, with less energy in places like that. 
it wasn't necessary here always in here i was being asked to do the funniest looking building or the tallest building or the funkiest building or the least columns or whatever and i had to respond to that as an engineer so yes i would say that we might be perceived to come to the world of let's do it all in whatever material less right but we're not so the next generation at my office, which most of it has been there 15, 20 years, wouldn't let me get away with it, Hattie. They just couldn't let me get away with it if it wasn't about what is the current gritty problem. It may have been parametrics 20 years ago. What is it today? It's climate. Thank you so much, Hanif. Really interesting to talk to you. In our next episode, we will be turning our attention to building performance, an absolutely essential aspect of reaching net zero. Our next guest will be Judith Kempion. On the one-year anniversary of the publication of our book, Energy People Buildings, co-authored with Sophie Pelsmakers, we will revisit key messages from the book, and Judith will fill us in on recent developments in building performance, particularly at the European level. Current discourse has been very much dominated by all the excellent work being done around measuring embodied carbon and the need to regulate it. However, we must not lose sight of the simultaneous need to minimize energy demand and operational carbon emissions on every single project. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 